Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 97. I'm your host, Dan Holzman. On this podcast, we have the master juggler and IJ legend, Bob Nickerson. Hey, let's thank the IJ for sponsoring this podcast by going to juggle.org and finding out about this great organization. Find out about their festivals, products, and so much more at juggle.org. Okay, drop everything. Get ready for Bob Nickerson. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 97. My special guest, Mr. Bob Nickerson. Hi, Bob. Hello there, Daniel. Now, Bob, where do you live nowadays? I live in Crescent, Pennsylvania, which is uh, adjacent to Galitzin, Pennsylvania, where I lived for 26 years out in the woods, in the, with 19 acres in the woods. And uh, my wife got a case of house lust for a, a house in the town. So I'd describe, Crescent used to be uh, known as a speed trap when it was just a two-lane highway through the, and then the interstate went around it. And I used to say I was from Galitzin, Pennsylvania, the juggling, I used to say juggling center of Pennsylvania, now I say the Comedy Juggling Center of Pennsylvania and gateway to Crescent, Pennsylvania's most notorious speed trap. And it would get a big laugh locally. Well, you have to have that local humor so you can... Uh... If I were away from a local, I would say gateway to Altoona, where they still love George Burns. No relation to Charlie Tuna. <laughs> Dan, did you know you can tune a guitar, but you can't tune a fish? Well, we already have Charlie, uh, Charlie, we have George Burns, Charlie Tuna. We're, we're getting off to and, a good start here, Bob. Well, uh, you can't tune a fish, and I say I don't know why, because they've got the scale. That's, that, makes, that makes sense. <laughs> I'm told they form a Poisson distribution, but only mathematicians get that part of the joke. Boy, I should have gone to school to understand your jokes. Yes. <laughs> get, get school fish, Bob. I'm, I'm trying to catch up. I can't even stand with you. Now, Bob, tell me how the whole journey started. So we ended up in Pennsylvania. Where did the Bob Nickerson story begin? Okay, my story begins in uh, Brooks, Maine. Uh, grew up on a dairy farm. It's uh, 12 miles north of Belfast and Penobscot Bay. My dad was a dairy farmer and a school teacher. And I have, of course, a whole routine about uh, the dairy farm, but uh, it's uh, nothing but baloney. And my uh, mother was uh, a simple housewife. See, she had been widowed, and then she was widowed again when my dad died at the age of 69. He had lifelong diabetes, type 1 diabetes, so not from not like the modern one from obesity. Anyway. I grew up there on a dairy farm. Uh, we still used horses. If I describe somebody as uh, not knowing the difference from a hame strap to a whiffle tree, that would include almost uh, 100% of anybody who would possibly be listening to this podcast. But any Amish person would know the difference. So it sounds like you grew up in kind of an idyllic uh, pastoral upbringing. It was. We we had this uh, wonderful view of the valley between us, the hill we lived on, which made it a t terrible for farming, but uh, uh, wonderful for living, and uh, the Camden Mountains to the south, and uh, and a hill on each side, a an artist's dream as far as uh, vista goes. And, uh, yeah, growing up on the farm, you get to do uh, a lot of things. You don't have to work too much until you get to be about 12 or so when you get strong enough to lift a bale of hay and shovel manure and pitch hay and stuff. Before that, about any, all, all you can do is weed the garden. And, uh, Bob, as a, as a young man, how did you see your life panning out? Did you have any uh, ambitions at that time? I was uh, a good student. Uh, well, uh, I was academically talented, let's put it that way. I wasn't a good student. I spent too much of my time reading instead of doing homework, you know, or wanted to read instead of doing homework. I dreamed of being an engineer, you see. Mm -hmm. And the closest I ever got to that was uh, a year after high school, I joined the Marines, 
and was in electronic school for and after 15 weeks of electronic school we were introduced to transistors for one week mm-hmm. the previous 15 weeks had been uh, devoted to this study of tube technology that shows you how far back that was that was 1963 and, and how'd you choose the marines how'd you end up in the marines oh i'd wanted to be the roughest toughest person possible you know had dreams of manliness <laughs> and were you a, a sporting guy growing up i imagine you're uh, you excelling in lots of sports as a kid I tried basketball mainly because, uh, in fact, this is one of the primary reasons I could take a shower in the gym in school instead of uh, in a uh, washtub at home. Uh, I couldn't take a shower in a washtub. I had to do a sponge bath in a washtub at home because we did not have uh, indoor. Well, we had water, but we didn't have indoor plumbing. We had an outhouse at the end of the shed right adjacent to the barn. And by ultimate, I was third te- uh, third team player on a in a school of uh, 120 students total. But I did run uh, track uh, track and field long distance my senior year. My dad uh, mortgaged two cows and sent me to a prep school because I had failed two course two mandatory courses English and U.S. history uh, for failing to write. A sufficient number of essays. This was in the Sputnik uh, panic about American education, and and of course I didn't really understand the concept of writing essays at that time. Now I could write a bunch of baloney on almost any subject you could ask for, but uh, I I was not not so uh, verbose in those days. Any juggling at that time? Did you see any jugglers or have any juggling as a young man? I went to the circus and saw a guy, and I have no idea who it was, but at the end he juggled, uh, I think he juggled seven rings, and it was uh, pretty astounding, and my idea of a juggling was that you had to be, you know, extraordinary human being with lightning reflexes, and it was abundantly evident that I did not have uh, lightning reflexes, because... My brother and I were almost uniformly the last people chosen up to play baseball at school when they uh, chose up. So uh, it never occurred to me. Then late in, when I was in the Marine Corps, though, I, uh, I got tired of walking around the base, and it was a very large base, Camp Pendleton. By the way, I was the uh, cross-country champion there once. And uh, in 1964, I still have the newspaper from the Camp Pendleton Scouter, and I swam on the um, base swim team and the base cross-country team. And the swim team, we beat the 11th Naval District. We beat the uh, SEALs and the Frogmen of the uh, Fib Pack 12, it was called. But I did, uh, as I said, I got tired of walking, and I... Wanted a bicycle, but I said, "Well, a bicycle is wasn't cool in those days." And I thought, "What would be really spectacular?" And I I can't remember how I found it. Probably the phone book, a bicycle shop, and those were very rare in those days. And I took a bus out there and bought a unicycle. <laughs> and after a thousand or more falls, I I could ride it. And I was uh, riding all around the base on the unicycle. I got in the local base paper for that, and then when I went overseas after Vietnam, I got in the Stars and Stripes overseas in the military newspaper for riding my unicycle around the base on Okinawa. But I still hadn't thought of learning to juggle because I thought, oh, that takes lightning reflexes, which I didn't have. After I was in the Marine Corps, I uh, got out of the Marine Corps in Quantico, Virginia, took a train into Washington, D.C., which is about 30 miles away. I got out at Union Station, bought a newspaper, and had a job as a lifeguard before the afternoon was over. And I lived there for another five years, and I met this woman, and she was a student, nursing student at Johnstown. And she had a she had a Navy scholarship for her senior year, and so I married a sailor. Hmm. That was seventy two, 
So as I uh, as I said in uh, when we talked before we started, uh, my 49th anniversary was last Thursday. And when did juggling come into play then? So what age were you when you learned to juggle? All right. Finally, we, we got assigned to Guam. It was just as the Vietnamese refugees were there, 125 uh, Vietnamese refugees. And, and I went to the University of Guam. And a part of my juggling act now is that I juggle sporting goods, uh, although I haven't done my act now for a year and a half. And every every sporting good, I claim this is how I made the varsity whatever mm-hmm. team at the University of Guam. Right, right. But anyway, I got uh, interested in... Uh, Martial arts, there was a, well, somebody actually from weightlifting, somebody in the, at the uh, desk at the gym said, hey, he was trying to get people to uh, sign up for uh, an Aikido class. And he talked me into it. So I signed up and I really, really enjoyed it. So now I was a martial artist. And I started buying and reading Black Belt magazine and karate <laughs> Right. A day or whatever. Sure. And I found out about something. Uh, there was an article about something called Wing Chun Kung Fu. And I'd never heard of that. But it looked totally different from any uh, karate I'd seen. I'd seen several Kung Fu films, and they didn't look realistic at all. But this Wing Chun looked very, very realistic. And I realized that was the uh, style that, that was advertised in the local paper. The... Um, Wing Chun School. And so I went over and tried that out. Uh, it was t- totally different from uh, from Aikido, of course. Mm-hmm. A close-in striking style. And I quickly learned that I was the oldest, heaviest, and slowest guy in the class. And I was only 33 years old at the time, uh, and only 200 pounds at the time. So uh, way different than I am now. And I said, what could I do that would give me fast hands so I could, uh, uh, you know, gain more from this martial arts class. And they had exercises you could do with a partner, but I was wanted something I could do by myself. And I thought of juggling. So I got three balls. You've heard of pinkies that you can buy at yeah. any... The cheap, like, toy store balls, yeah. Yes. They call them super bouncy pinkies, of course, we know that they're not super bouncy. They were the same ones Anthony Gatto used, the pinky balls. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised when he started out. Well, because his father wanted ones that he could just get easily replaced. The pinkies were everywhere. Oh, yes, yes. You can find them any place. Yeah. And anyways, the only juggling pattern I could imagine was the shower. Hmm. So I started showering. And about a half hour a day, because I was really busy with my studies at the University of Guam and taking care of my daughter, Cassandra, and Lucy, who had just been born. In retrospect, I chide Lucy. I say, you were such an ornery kid, you drove me to juggling. So with the studies, the martial arts, the weightlifting, and I was also a part-time lifeguard at the uh, uh, Navy pool across the street from our house. I was a busy boy, so a half hour was all I could spare. And... After three weeks, I was able to successfully do the shower. And I said, well, I've got the timing to be a complete juggler. I should do it backwards, which is right-handed, because hmm. I'm a natural lefty. Three weeks later, I thought I, I thought it would be just a matter of a couple of days, but it was exact same amount of time to learn it backwards. So you could shower uh, right-handed and left-handed, okay. But no cascade yet. You couldn't cascade? After I learned both of this, this was in uh, both of these, this was uh, six weeks later, mm-hmm. I s- happened to see there was some uh, documentary on PBS, and there was a scene that took place in a park. Somebody standing in the background was cascading three balls. And my first immediate reaction was, he's doing it wrong. <laughs> Right. And then I said, well, it actually works. And I didn't get a chance to study it much, but I said, well, I'll see if I can figure it out. And I learned it in 20 minutes after three weeks apiece uh, on a yeah. left hand and a right hand shower. And then it just took off. After a while, I said, well, you know, 
the balls are falling vertically, but punches come at you horizontally. How am I going to really mimic stopping and controlling a punch? And I said, well, if I dribbled balls, I'd be bending over and they'd be bouncing up at me. Mm. In those days, you could go out any place and buy whammo super balls. Right. Which really are high bouncing. And so I did, and I learned to do two, and finally two in one hand, and then two in the other hand, and then I got three, and later I could do four balls. Uh, actually, it wasn't three years later. It was uh, four balls that I, four ball dribble that I could uh, control easily. But super balls are not not ideal for dribbling because they yeah, they're small. They're so small. But anyway, from Guam, uh, my wife went to uh, Salt Lake City for graduate school to get a master's in nursing and a midwifery certificate. And while there, I met uh, Bill Nat, who was a mm-hmm. school teacher there. You're probably familiar with the name Bill Nat, right? Yeah, his name came up uh, last podcast because I was talking to Larry Voxman. Oh, really? And I got you guys confused a little bit because... I thought Larry had done the three billiard bar, billiard cue balance, and that was you. And I thought maybe he had known Bill Nat because you're about the same age, but that was you. And Bill Nat was in Utah, and he was also a, a sporting goods juggler. So uh, Dan Bennett knew him, mm-hmm. and Taylor Glenn got to meet him when he was old. She saw an article about him in a nur- in a newspaper about him in a nursing home. And because he was a juggler, she went to talk to him. And so there's a common thread from young to old. And when Albert Lucas gave his talk in Indiana, Fort Wayne, at Fort Wayne, he had footage from the when Albert was 10 years old at the 1969 uh, convention of some of the jugglers that were there. And one of them was uh, Bill Nat, who was juggling uh hatchets and uh knives he the first time i i met him at his school he went out to his car got his bag of uh bags of uh juggling props he juggled five knives three in one hand three in the right hand two in the left hand yeah he was he was known for just juggling like regular hardware knives axes really big stuff heavy stuff he was also a fitness enthusiast article, a 10-page article about him in Sports Illustrated. Yeah, I read it. Which nobody ever read because (laughs) it was in the 1990 swimsuit edition. Right, right. He was a very good juggler. Not very well known, but a very strong juggler. So you met him and you were still an amateur at that time. The second professional juggler I ever talked to was on the advice of Bill Nat was Bobby May, because he lived about a half a mile from my brother-in-law in in, uh, suburbs of Cleveland. And uh, Bobby May described Bill Nat as one of the finest technical jugglers he ever saw. And uh, Bill Nat won the Rustelli Prize in Europe, and part of his prize um, uh, stuff was films of Rustelli. So I got to see films of Rustelli. Wow. Before I went to my first juggler's convention, he was the first one that told me that my four-ball dribbling, he says, I think you got a new trick there, Bob. And I showed it to uh, Bobby May, and he said, yeah, because he, he kept asking me. I, I'd show him tricks uh, I was doing. He said, well, I used to do that, or somebody else. And finally, I brought out the um, four super balls and did the uh, four-ball dribble on his hearthstone, and he said, oh, I think, I think <laughs> you got it. And I could see the, the love in his voice that, you know, somebody is uh, extending the art. And were you thinking about being a professional at that time? And- oh, no. It was not till I'd been about doing it for five years that I thought, you know, because uh, I was taking so much time per day, uh, a couple hours a day of practicing mm. uh, or more. And I said, my wife would really uh, like this a lot more if I could figure out a way to make some money <laughs> at this. Right. So it, in 79, uh, she'd finished up with her uh, college and we went to uh, the Naval Hospital in Newport, Rhode Island. And that was the same year that the uh, Jugglers Convention was in uh, Amherst, Massachusetts. And I'd found out about the juggling 
convention in the IJA because I found a set of three juggling balls that were ribbed rubber, so they had a grip on them, sold by Jugglebug in some shop in Salt Lake City. I just came across it, and inside it had, uh, besides a how-to-juggle sheet of paper, it had information about the International Jugglers Association. So I had joined up and uh, got my first newsletter, which was the, uh, of course, uh, as an introductory member, you get the uh, roster. Right. And Bill Nat went through the roster and he said, there's only, Harry Bob, and this is sort of the way he talked, there's only one juggler in this whole thing. That's Bobby May. <laughs> right. And so uh, that was what inspired me to meet Bobby May when I visited my brother-in-law in, -law in uh, Cleveland area. Uh, and I'm sure glad I did. So I went to the jugglers convention, and I remember uh, I, I took my two kids with me. There were five and three at the time. Lucy was three, and my older daughter, Cass, was five. And they were, because Cass has Down syndrome, so they were close to the same mental age, actually. As I was checking in, the checking in was outdoors, and there was somebody standing behind the, I uh, have, still have no idea who it was, standing behind the table 10, 15 feet back on the lawn, and he was doing back crosses. I mean, continuous back crosses. Single, double, triple, single, double, <laughs> triple, single. And I thought, holy moly, I might as well turn around, go home, and burn all my props, you know? Yeah. But I didn't. I registered, and I had a wonderful time. And I had a terrific memory then. By the time the thing was over, I could probably tell you the name of at least half of the people that were there. I have only missed one convention since. And that first, uh, was 1995, the year uh, Francoise Rocher won the championship, when I just happened to not have enough money to go. And what was your first uh, professional job? When did you actually start working as a juggler? I started looking at the uh, newspaper for upcoming events, you know, in the weekend mm -hmm. section of the paper. I did something, uh, some festival in Pawtucket, Rhode Island. And then I've, uh, I was in some parades just for the publicity, uh, the Memorial Day parade. Uh, oh, I did a thing for the uh, Lawn Tennis Association, which is headquartered in Newport, Rhode Island. If we'd stayed in the Navy and we'd stayed there... I think I would have been, because I was a pretty good diplomat, I think we could have opened up Newport for busking. Because oh. they had anti-busking laws at the time. Because uh, Newport is a high-toned high summer resort, you understand. I've heard of it, yeah. Yeah, it was at that time the uh, headquarters of the America's Cup, and had been for over 100 years, since no foreign country team had, had uh, beat the Americans until it, it was uh, a year or so after we left that somebody did, Australians or New Zealanders or someplace. Anyway, uh, and it was things like that. I remember the first time I busked, shortly before payday, my wife's payday, and uh, this was after I'd been to the convention, and I read about the um, a Renaissance festival over the weekend in Providence, Rhode Island. I had about three bucks on me and enough to get in. Right. And I carried a bag of clubs. Well, I'm props. Uh, yeah. I had the hatchets, too. I had my axe routine sort of together by that time. So I got in, and I had on a, a jester's costume that my wife had made for me and wandered around and juggled. And then a, a flute player, I think it was, he sort of teamed up with me. And together we managed to get a good crowd. And I thought, well, because uh, I, as a walk-around juggler, I was not able to get a good crowd because I didn't really have an act. So uh, I did some stuff, and then I finished up with a bit of my hatchet routine. And I said, it's now or never, Bob, and <laughs> I put out the hat. Right. I made back my entrance fee plus several dollars more. And I did this several times with the flute player, and we split it up. And then I came home and, and uh, told my wife, and we were all happy. 
and then there was uh, a guy, Tom Haley. Okay. Well, we went, and of course, Tom is a electronics engineer. Does su- did super secret work for the Navy as a civilian, and uh, we went there, and we d- we passed clubs among other s- stuff, and, and passed the hat, and we made even more money. Right. Until. Somebody from the festival came and told us to get out of there. <laughs> they said nobody, nobody else is getting paid, or nobody else is asking for money. Right. And he was so chagrined because you know he's a middle class sure. man in good standing and a high paying job, and he was afraid somebody, one of his neighbors, might see him passing the hat for money, and think he was on hard times. And then we went and uh, did a show for his church incidentally, and quite importantly for his girlfriend who was there, whom he ended up marrying. And then the rest is history. Uh... <laughs> You're famous for your comedy. Uh, so you said at first you teamed up with a flute player. When yeah. did you start uh, doing comedy and doing all of your famous puns? It's a good idea, uh, because from the Amherst Convention, my two heroes uh, that I took home the idea of were Edward Jackman and the amazing Larry V. Mm-hmm. And they both used high skill in, in totally different ways yeah. and comedy in totally different ways. Of course, uh, Edward Jackman is just a uh, comedy genius, and uh, I'm not. So that was my goal, because uh, I had no way of... And I couldn't really see myself being uh, dancing around, prancing around to music. And besides, I didn't have a boombox to practice with anyway. Right. And by the time I was able to afford a boombox, the kids confiscated it, and I never got to use it anyway. So I'll juggle and do comedy. There you go. How do you think of a joke? Well, I was uh, demonstrating my axes at a family reunion. A whole bunch of uh, my wife's family came from Pennsylvania up to uh, Newport. And one of them was my sister-in-law, who's a music professor, extremely talented piano player, you know, the kind that can shift keys in the midst of a song, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. play for hours without any music in front of her, different song every minute. And uh, when I'd finished it, uh, she said, and I'll never forget this, she says, why don't you call it a show in three acts. Hmm. Wow. And all of a, <laughs> all of a sudden, yeah. we started having axe puns. Everybody had an idea. Within a few days, I had a routine put together in a semi-logical pattern from all these uh, really terrible, terrible puns. And uh, I used it, and I started doing some other stuff like that. And then people said boy, you have a lot of puns in your act. And it totally took me by surprise. These are just jokes. It happened to be the only kind of joke I could think of. And then uh, I was dribbling the, uh, I got Crosby balls, the Canadian lacrosse balls, at the convention to dribble with, which are much better. Yeah. And I would do my dribbling tricks, and uh, every dribbling trick I did then, nobody else had ever done. Now there's uh, two or three dozen people can do all of them and more and doing with basketballs. People would say, well, it's not really dribbling because it's not basketball. So I I bought four basketballs. Right. And I claimed I was on the uh, varsity basketball (laughs) team at the University of Guam. And then I saw Toby Twist in 1980, which was your first convention, in Fargo. And I couldn't figure out what the kind of juggling you do. It was just too fast visually for me to unravel. But I saw Toby Twist do three 11-pound bowling balls. Oh, I remember that too, yeah. yeah. And I, I had been a weightlifter since uh, 1957, and I knew, I knew I was uh, stronger than Toby V. Twist, but I couldn't do that. But So I went home and I uh, went around to yard sales and purchased bowling balls like a dummy. The, instead of going to a uh, bowling alley and, pra- uh, and purchasing six pound, a uh, three yeah. six pound bowling ball, and I learned how to do it. 
And uh, my re- my personal record was uh, 29 throws with uh, three 16-pounders. Wow. And then in uh, 82, I heard a hernia. And uh, so then I got a bunch of hernia jokes. And that was from uh, the bowling ball juggling or something else? The bowling ball oh, juggling okay. and hard living. Sure. And uh, then I juggled duck pin bowling balls. And that's how I got the duck joke routine with the bowling balls. Uh, I went to my doctor. I said, uh, Doc, uh, I think I've got a hernia. He said, are you sure it's not a hisnia? <laughs> I said, trust me. I yeah. said, trust me. Trust is, this me? Mic, yeah. is this mic working? I said, trust me. He was sort of <laughs> strapped for an answer. Then he buckled down and said, Bob, you ought to have a, a good <laughs> stiff belt. <laughs> <laughs> Try that trick. And so I pull out my weightlifting belt and put it around me. And now, now it's too small to even buckle around me. And I said, that's a good theory. And then he said, why don't you try duck pin bowling balls? I said, duck pin bowling balls. I think this guy's a quack. Mm. And I mean, the first tip-off was these uh, diplomas on his wall. You know how doctors uh, said, sure. uh, Drake University. It's been so long since I've done my act. I'm forgetting some of the jokes. I have a question uh, for you, Bob. When did you, when did you start wearing your, your traditional knickers? Was that always your outfit? Because you became famous. Uh, as... No, I wore I wore shorts until San Jose, because I remember Marlon Michael. Okay, Michael Marlon. Marlon was CMC, and he says uh, Bob Nickerson and uh, Anthony Gatto both saving a ton of money on costume by wearing shorts. Okay. In fact, I preceded uh, Anthony on stage. I was practicing. Warming up with the uh, axe balance on my face and uh, juggling the hatchets. And it was working well, but Anthony would come out to try practice some of his stuff behind the curtain. And uh, I was deathly afraid that, you know, I would drop something on Anthony, and boy, would that have been bad news. But I didn't, and he won that year at the age of 13. And I placed uh, next to last. No, uh, yeah, next to last, as I had, did in every single competition I ever entered. How many times did you compete? You competed quite a few times. Do you know how many total? I competed from 81 in Cleveland until, not, no, 92 in Montreal. The first three years, there was no qualifying for the finals. In 81, I finished 22 out of 23. Nice. The guy that... Uh, I beat, he went and juggled raw eggs over the heads of the judges. <laughs> okay. I merely slammed a tomato with the side of my hatchet, saying I'm, it's late and I have to catch up, and splashed tomato juice on the judges. Okay. <laughs> and then in 90, I almost finished third for last, or instead of next to last. Mm-hmm. But I was able to retain my standing because Arsene, Arsene uh, deliberately kicked a prop off the stage. Oh, right, right. Got disqualified. Yeah. Thus disqualifying himself. Yeah. So I was able to uh, maintain my record because, you know, I would still have been uh, next to last because he would have beaten me. So I have an unbroken record of finishing either last or next to last. It was even a stretch where I put on my promotional sheet that I sent out that I'm the only juggler to finish in the top 10 of the IJA championship, senior championship, for each of the last four years. Even though one of those years I didn't even make the finals, but I checked, and there were there were not 10 people. Sure, showbiz. You to, yeah. You have to frame so it right. It's utterly true but utterly, totally misleading. But it was in uh, San Jose that you became Bob Nickerson with the knickers on? Oh, no, no. No. That was the last year I used the uh, shorts. The shorts. From okay. then on, I wore the knickers. I cannot remember exactly why I wore them, but I immediately would be, uh, introduce, introduce myself as Bob Nickerson with the knickers on, because to try to get people to remember my name. In fact, I say, 
I'm Bob Nickerson with the Nickerson. That's a joke. It's a cheap joke, but it helps people remember my name. I mean, let's face it. How many jugglers' names could you remember? And there'd be silence. And then I would say, I'm Bob Nickerson with the Nickerson. That's a joke. It's a cheap joke, but it helps people remember my name. Uh, I mean, let's face it. How many jugglers' names could you remember? And then I would furiously, desperately point to my knickers. <laughs> and, and sometimes they'd yell out Bob Nickerson with the knickers on. And also you were the jocular juggler. When did you start using that moniker, the jocular juggler? Well, while I was in Newport, I had uh, some business cards printed up. And I said, the jocular juggler, because I was, uh, used jokes, and I spelled it Bob Nickerson, jocular juggler, and I spelled it J-O-C-U-L-A-R, like it is in the dictionary. And then later I read a book about marketing. Uh, I can't remember the name of it, but I do remember <laughs> the name of, of one of the authors was named Trout. Okay. And uh, they wrote a series of books about... Uh, branding and marketing and then i added the jocular juggle it's the next business card to imply that there was no other yeah and then as i said i got the basketballs instead of the uh, silicone balls or canadian lacrosse balls at the time for uh dribbling and then i got the bowling balls and then i was performing at some flea market and a guy was trying to sell me some golf clubs. And he said, you could juggle golf clubs in your act. And I said, yeah, that, I could, couldn't I? And so I bought them. I think I had paid five bucks a piece for three clubs. And I started to look at what I was doing. I said, oh, I have an athletic act. And I can claim, you know, with a, a, a baloney way that I was... Uh, on the uh, sure. the golf team, University the bowling team, the <laughs> tiddlywings team, at the University of Guam. And so now I'm a jock. So I put in K in the jocular. Mm -hmm. And then I put in a hyphen so people didn't think I didn't know how to spell, you see. Sure. You, to point out it was a joke, you're a jock, and now you're the and also a joke teller, so you're the yeah. jocular juggler. And it turns out that more people remember me as the jocular juggler than as Bob Nickerson with the knickers on. Something about it is more memorable. So, Well, it has the alliteration, the jocular juggler. But also you were, you were rewarded for your juggling skills because uh, you got in the Guinness Book of World Records. Tell yep. us what record you have. Uh, I have three different records. Okay. Two of them have been broken and one unbroken simply because nobody ever ever read that record and in fact it was um first one was most basketball dribbled at the same time right. and gene jones was the guy responsible for getting me in all of them by the way he was the liaison for the yeah. between the ija and the guinness book which had a office in america at the time in the uh, basement of the empire state building yeah he got me in for the four ball dribble he uh he got some argument from the editor. He said, I've seen people uh, dribble four balls before. And I said, well, they sort of dribble. They uh, right. double dribble each ball and it bounced while they double dribble the other two balls. Ah. And he said, what do you do? I hit every ball, every bounce. And uh, Gene called up and said, uh, Bob, this has never happened before. They changed their mind. They're putting you in. Nice. And then uh, a year later, in 91, it got me in because uh, I was shooting baskets while juggling three basketballs. And it's something that the Globetrotters do as a ha-ha, wouldn't it be funny if I could do this sort of thing at the beginning of their routine, uh, before the game. One of the last things they do before the game. But because it's not really part of their... Uh, something they concentrate on, you know, they concentrate on playing basketball more than anything else and trying to be funny. But I was concentrating on it as a serious, serious skill, seriously as a skill. In fact, I came up to, uh, from Pennsylvania up to New York, and he timed me at a gym. Happened to be the same YMCA where the young Lou Alcindor used to play, yeah. Okay, Kareem Al-Jabbar, yeah. Yeah. 
And so that got into the sports record book in 91. I had uh, 20 shots in one minute and 25 shots without missing. Nice. And then uh, Joseph Odiombo broke my uh, dribbling record by dribbling a fifth ball with his feet and then uh, two balls with his feet uh, two years later in 2002. And then I told him about the shooting record, and he broke the record for uh, baskets in one minute. He's up to oh, 52 or something like that, wow. uh, which is about as fast as you could do it. So that's juggling and shooting baskets at the same time. Yeah. The only way he could do it faster, I think, would be either a shower or reverse cascade. He's so big and tall, long arms, that he could do a reverse cascade and do both hands, mm. going, shooting with both hands, which I couldn't because I'd have to move so far from side to side. Right, to do right. That. I think he's satisfied with that speed. And I don't think he ever actually read the part about the most without missing. Oh, I because see. Because at one point in practice, I got 150 shots without missing before I missed. 150-something. And did you uh, end up doing a lot of NBA halftime games with your dribbling skills? I did a few. I did a few. I learned that the basketball market is a really tough market. I tried to do basketball camps for a while, and one summer I got, I think, about six, no, no, about eight. I think I got about seven or eight. The thing is, they hire college coaches. Right and uh, star college players as counselors. And the counselors are willing to, you know, just play basketball in summer. The coaches are there to scout out prospects for their college teams, so they do it for peanuts. Right. And so they're not used to spending money. The NBA, well, it's very varied. Uh, some are willing to spend a lot of money. Some spend nothing. The Celtics don't have halftime en entertainment. The uh, Knicks, if you call them up, they say New York Knickerbockers. <laughs> they right. do. Yeah. And they say, oh, people do it for the exposure. Well, actually, I did it once for the exposure, but it was some years later. I thought I was going to get on a uh, TV show. And they filmed me, and it was a sellout crowd, too, at the Meadowlands Arena with the Nets, because it was like two, having two home teams. And I kept waiting for them to do the show and put me on the... It was a half-hour Saturday afternoon show about the NBA. Finally, they said, Bob, uh, we haven't used it, and we think we've... Uh, Reused the videotape for something else. So, but I did get a hotel room out of it. I, th I think that was all I got. And you did a show at the uh, Basketball Hall of Fame, so that was pretty big. Oh yes. Oh, I can't remember which year it was, but uh, uh, Billy Cunningham and uh, 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 no, I can't remember the other guys that were inducted that time. But you got to meet uh, John Wooden, the coach, the famous coach. No, I met him. At the NCAA Final Four in 91 in Indiana. Hmm. And he was interviewed by CBS. And I was interviewed by CBS the next day. But I had a friend with me. We drove, in fact, there together. And he did uh, trick shooting. <laughs> trouble, trouble is, he would shoot and then he would walk over to get the, uh, the ball that fell through the basket. And I said, Run, run! <laughs> this is TV time. It's you know thousands right, of dollars right, right. per minute. You know I don't know how much. Sure. But anyway, they interviewed me. But while he was shooting, John Wooden came in, so I got to meet him and say hello and shake his hand. So that nice. was wonderful. And the next day, I was. It was after Duke won. I think we were at the airport, and they were the. Uh, it was this CBS weatherman, and I, I'm having a block on his name now. And he interviewed me at the airport, and I managed to get in a plug from a local CBS affiliate here in Altoona as well. And I had him laughing a couple times at something I was saying, mainly because they kept talking, and I, I knew the exact pages of the Guinness Book for uh, the, both the paperback and the hardback edition of my records. And he thought that was kind of funny. Let me ask you about some of your tricks now, Bob, because you're, you're famous for certain things, obviously for your puns, but also for your combination tricks. Yeah. 
Tell me about the trick where you balance a cue on your forehead and juggle three axes. And please tell me the pun that goes with the axes and cue juggling. Ah, that was only for the championship in 1985 in Atlanta. And you were there. In fact, we we rode the bus together. And we played 20 questions on the bus, I remember. Wow. (laughs) Okay. I don't remember. Yeah. You don't remember that? No, I don't don't remember playing 20 questions with anybody. Oh, I guess guess we're doing that now. Well, maybe you uh, weren't the the, uh, MC of the 20 questions, but we did play 20 questions on the bus to the uh, Atlanta Symphony Hall. Well, my big surprise of that year was that I had my flippers on. Okay. So I could talk about my swim team experiences and how I learned the backstroke because I was on Guam and Guam is an island and swimming was mandatory. But to lead up to the supine uh, bowling ball juggle, which I think is unique in that nobody else in the history has been dumb enough to try that trick. Uh, juggling a bowling ball all over your face while uh, lying on your back. Because I do wear a helmet because to err is human while juggling supine. (laughs) And I am prone to error, you see. And you were juggling three bowling balls while laying on your back? Is that the trick? No, one bowling ball and two two tennis balls. No, I think uh, three bowling balls. You could do it with three candle pin or or duck pin bowling balls, but not with ten pin bowling balls. Anyway, it's just so dumb that nobody else has wanted to do it. I was doing it because I had uh, got a a compressed nerve in my back, and every time I caught a bowling ball, my feet would go numb. My left foot would go numb. So I could see this going nowhere. And it took three years to get back to where I could do bowling balls again. But anyway, I start off with uh, the curtain opens and I have my flippers on. So any step I take is an automatic laugh the first time you see it. And so I pick up the pool cue, balance it on my face, and juggle the hatchet. And the reason I did it, uh, oh, you, you don't like that trick. Well, axe Excuse me. <laughs> I had to get you to do that one, Bob. I had to. I had to get that one. Excuse me. And of course, all the young people wouldn't have a clue what that's about because that was a tagline of uh, the young Steve Martin, mm-hmm. as you remember and I sure. remember. And so you did that trick just so you could do that joke. Yep. That's commitment to a joke. I like that. Yeah. So. And later, of course, I uh, balanced the axe on my face and juggled the hatchets. And obviously, uh, nobody has been dumb enough to to duplicate that trick. And I stopped doing that the year after my hip replacement. In uh, I did it for one more year, I think. I think we're getting a theme here going, Bob. There's a hernia, a hip replacement, a <laughs> uh, uh, compressed nerve. Uh, <laughs> are you okay? You doing okay now? How's it going? <laughs> Okay, I stopped doing the uh, my uh, copy of Larry V's trick of the hula hoop on the roller bowler while juggling two years before my knee replacements. That was 2007, the year I was in uh, Winston-Salem. Are there uh, any original parts left, Bob, or are they all been replaced by now? Oh, <laughs> I have uh, original shoulders left minus minus all the cartilage. Uh, my left hip doesn't hurt. Everything else is uh, calcifying, and uh, it's it's funny. My my doctors say all my spinal vertebra are uh, terribly arthritic, but I don't have any pain there because uh, of certain exercise routines, static contraction in the fully contracted position using the principles of Arthur Jones, who invented the Nautilus machine, and Dr. Uh, Doug McGuff and uh, a guy from Canada who invented max contraction training. If anybody wants to get strong and and be kind to their joints, I look up max contraction training in the book or McGuff's book, uh, Body by Science. In our last uh, conversation, though, you told me you were still working on new juggling tricks. Oh, yeah. What's this new one you're working on with the hula hoop uh, around your eyes, I think you told me? Around my neck. Okay. Uh, I call it orbital. 
juggling, you see? It's a quick way to describe it. I have a YouTube video of it, and I said, juggling three tennis balls through the spinning hula hoop. Mm. And, of course, with a title like that, it's gotten over six years, it's gotten 120 views. <laughs> okay, so you got that. <laughs> so if you do something so difficult and, and uh, obviously difficult that nobody else in the history of the world has ever done it, although there's one person who's copied it uh, so, so far, I don't know if it's out of respect or <laughs> I doubt it. I'm sure after this interview, though, Bob, all our listeners will go to YouTube and watch your video of you juggling the hula hoop around your neck and the balls in between the hula hoop. And you'll yeah. have 170 views, maybe. So Okay, <laughs> we'll see. I only do one trick on that uh, videotape. Now I'm working on uh, around 40 different tricks. I do, uh, with three balls, I do four, five, six, seven ball throws oh. in various side swaps from 4-2-3 to 4-2-3-3 three, three, to 5-2-2-3 two, two, three, to 5-2-2-3-3. Two, two, three, three. And then just mix them up one way. I do five two two, three three one way, and then seven two 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 three three the other way. So that's all while you're doing the hula hoop around your neck. While doing the hula hoop around my neck, and if you reverse them, each one you have to learn a whole new timing because in one case the uh, hoop is advancing across the field where you're juggling, and the other side of the hoop is re retreating. In fact, I call it orbital, and I refer to the different ways as either uh, retrograde or synchronous hmm. to, to try to be uh, consistent with the orbital, uh, the astronomical verbiage. You know? Well, it's nice to see that you're working on new stuff and that you have uh, plans for the future. So I couldn't do any of the behind-the-back and between-the-leg stuff with uh, the dribbling, so I just went back to fundamental basics and uh, stuff I can do right in front of me with the silicone balls. Pounding the basketballs was uh, hard on the shoulder joints after, after many years of it. Bob, we've gotten to the end of our time together, unfortunately. Any last words of wisdom or jokes you'd like to leave our listeners with? Well, yes, uh, wisdom. Uh, as I said, if one wants to become a strongman juggler, I advise training by uh, John Little's Max Contraction, Arthur Jones's Nautilus Principles, and uh, Body by Science. And they're all based on the principles of Arthur Jones, who invented Nautilus. If you want to become famous, which is impossible in juggling, uh, I pick the only field of show business in which it is literally impossible to become famous, and as I uh, proved to some kids in uh, St. Louis who said, oh, Anthony's so no normal, you wouldn't know he's famous. And I said, go down to 7-Eleven and ask who Anthony Gardo is and see what sort of response you get. Outside of our world, there's no fame for jugglers. Although, Francis Bruin did get a half-page obituary in the New York Times, which was reprinted in the Pittsburgh papers, too. Well, didn't you get a spread in People magazine? Uh, two pages in People yeah. magazine. Yeah, a moment of fame. One page in Sports Illustrated. I was inspired by Bill Nat, who got two. Uh, got ten pages, but nobody read it because it was in the swimsuit yeah. edition. And uh, a two-page photo in uh, Sports Illustrated for kids. And plus the Guinness Book and uh, some, you know, local uh, papers all over the country. Well, you're famous at the IGA. I mean, you and... Larry Voxman, or, or... I am notorious in the IJA. <laughs> I'm, uh, I consider myself an iconic figure, and that's why I uh, consistently uh, attempt to do something at Club Renegade uh, from time to time. And, uh, and I've done, uh, of course, many workshops over the years. And probably the most notorious is the Heckler Line workshop, which is inspired by Robert Nelson, who did a spontaneous Heckler Line workshop in 1980 in Fargo, which proved invaluable to me later on. And do you have a favorite Heckler Line? A Heckler Line. Most of my best original ones come from my daughter, and <laughs> one of them is, it is a gift to be simple, isn't it? <laughs>
originally it ended up with, it is a gift to be simple, isn't it, Dad? And the other one was, remember what the uh, doctor said? Take the medication every day. Uh, the one that Bob Nelson gave me that uh, uh, worked so well on the two drunks on the, the canoe behind the floating stage who were heckling us. And I stepped up to the mic when I say us, it's the World Emergency Circus. The 10 years of uh, the greatest uh, enjoyment of my uh, juggling career is working with uh, Buffalo Bill and Dr. Jay Breckenridge uh, in the World Emergency Circus. And I stepped up to the mic and said, uh, uh, just goes to show folks you shouldn't drink on an empty head. We're getting near the end of the podcast, but we've neglected a very important part of your career. Tell me who is in and what it's like to work with the World Emergency Circus. It was uh, Bill Smith and Jay Breckenridge. And we called him Dr. Jay because while we were together, he got his uh, PhD in uh, English from Pitt, University of Pittsburgh. And Buffalo Bill was a magician from Knoxville, Tennessee. In fact, he came to Pittsburgh from uh, performing at the Knoxville World's Fair, where he'd worked with uh, Flip the Clown, uh, formerly of Locomotion Vaudeville and Locomotion Circus. Uh, we were hired uh, collectively by uh, audition by a director of the uh, Three River Shakespeare Festival named Mark Masterson, and put together... Two days later, we did our first show, and the summer worked out so well that at the end of the summer, Buffalo Bill, that's his magic name, Buffalo Bill. Mm -hmm. So in the, in the World Emergency Circus, I was Juggalo Bob, and Dr. J was Dr. O.J. We had different fool names. I was haphazard the juggler, for instance. How did you become uh, the World Emergency Circus? What, what did that name represent? That was a name that Buffalo Bill had of a previous group out of Atlanta that he worked with who were sent by a, a fraudulent agent or slash producer <laughs> <Okay>. or whatever <laughs> to California for a job that was totally fraudulent. They ran out of money and they had to make their way back independently. And uh, that was the end of the World Emergency Circus until Baff asked all the former members if he could use the name for our group. And they all agreed, so where you are. We performed at the White House uh, several times during the Reagan-Bush administrations. I remember the first time we were there, the guards at the uh, guardhouse where you come in from uh, Pennsylvania Avenue, well, actually 16th Street, they saw a world emergency circus and they were thinking we were some sort of protest group. And so we sang our theme song for them. We're the world emergency circus. We bring first aid for your stress. With magic music and juggling, the world seems less of a mess. With world emergency circus, you don't need a tent or a ring. Because with the world emergency circus, the juggling's everything. Did you say the magic's everything? Oh, you said the <laughs> music's everything. And uh, so they got it, and they let us in. Although it's funny, they uh, they made Buffalo Bill t take his sousaphone apart and and shake out anything that might be inside. And they made me un unload my little wagon, and they saw the axes and hatchets on the bottom and said nothing. But I did demonstrate my trick of juggling three hatchets while balancing the axe on my head. And somewhere I do have a photo of that, but I couldn't lay my hands on it immediately. And how long did you work together for? Uh, we worked together for 10 years. It was at the end of the summer that Buffalo Bill said, you know, this is, this is so great. We got to keep it together. In fact, the guy that ran the uh, Three River Shakespeare Festival, which was produced by the uh, theater department of uh, University of Pittsburgh, was a guy named Attilio Favarini, who went to the nickname of Buck, and he was the father of well-known juggler Francis Favarini, who now lives in uh, the South. I think he teaches, well, I shouldn't say... I thought it was Duke, but I could be totally wrong. He's uh, 
a mathematics professor. He teaches at college. We'll leave it at that, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. He teaches at college. He's a college teacher, college professor. That's right. Yeah, that's impressive. Ah, uh, yes. We're <laughs> in the company of geniuses in the IJA. Highest IQ group I've ever been uh, associated with. Well, all that juggling builds uh, bigger brains, right? Oh, yes. There have been studies that show that learning to juggle, like learning to play music using sight-reading music, can increase your IQ by 15%. Or 15 points. I can't. Uh, I think it was 15 points. Well, I, I can't remember. <laughs> you need to do more juggling. You need more juggling. You know, my memory's not what it used to be, but uh, maybe it never was, you know? Yeah, who knows? They say when your memory goes, forget it. And then, then you need milk of amnesia, by the way. <laughs> During the summer, we were the Fool's Company. I taught a well-known actor to juggle who was playing the part of Othello, Keith David, whom you might have seen in the movie uh, Barbershop or some others. And he, he narrated uh, Ken Burns' uh, jazz series. Was he juggling as Othello in the Shakespearean role? I don't, I don't yes. remember. He was. Oh, interesting. Yes. Uh, in fact, he was the highest paid actor there. He got 600 a week. At, we, as uh, the jugglers and magician and, and musician, were making more than most of the actors there. We later learned that they could have got uh, Billy D. Williams for the summer for 2000 a week, but they sadly couldn't afford it. But probably Keith David uh, did a better job, but uh, it would have had a whole new audience for Shakespeare if Billy D. had been there for the summer. Now, Bob, before I let you go, let me ask you a question. It seems like your life was on a particular path. How would you say juggling affected your life? Like, what, what does juggling mean to you? Oh, it just opened everything up. As I said, I, I started out as for Kung Fu, because I read a book about increasing your IQ by motor patterning drills after the Doman Delicato method of treating the brain damage. And I said, well, I learned three balls. And then I said, well, maybe I could learn uh, four balls. And then I learned five balls. And I said, wow, almost anything is possible. Maybe, maybe, just maybe I could learn five. And after three years of practice, I could do five. Of course, I was, uh, I was in my late 30s at the time, so slower learner than most. Uh, I taught... Dr. J, how to learn five, and he got it in six weeks at the age of 41. Nice. Which is astounding to me. Uh, J was obvious, is also, and you'll appreciate this, uh, the best straight man I've ever worked with, and uh, also the, the quickest wit that I've been associated with. He could come back with something funny really quickly. And I'm not so swift and facile myself. Well, Bob, you're certainly known for your humor. Yes. A huge amount of that humor came out of the, uh, you know, interplay between the us in the World Emergency Circus. We always tried to surprise each other with jokes. And we get a kick out of it if they just stopped and what the, where'd that come from, you know? It sounds like fun. It sounds like you had a great time. Oh, we had fun. Uh, the uh, act broke up after five years because uh, Buffalo Bill got divorced, and he took an 18-month contract with Carnival Cruise Lines to pay off his bills, and he never made it back to Pittsburgh except to visit. We're still really good friends. He's working in uh, Tennessee his uh, home state. Jay is retired, both from being a professor and from juggling in Pittsburgh, and I'm going to be staying with him this weekend when I work three days at Kennywood Amusement Park for their Celebrate America Fourth of July celebration. My 27th year doing that. Great, Bob. Great. Let's end with one last joke. Give us one of the famous uh, Bob Nickerson soliloquies. Okay. Uh, one word of advice is... Uh, no publicity happens by accident. Okay. The People magazine thing, I wrote a letter to one of the editors, because yeah. in those days they used to publish uh, editors' names on the masthead, and I said, short, balding, middle-aged, fat man from the mountains of western Pennsylvania claims to be world's greatest trick basketball dribbler. 
Nice. And the short, balding, middle-aged, fat man was what made it newsworthy, not because it wouldn't be any news if it was Michael Jordan. Right, right. The jokes, you say? Sure. Give us a little bit of a spiel to end with. Okay, I'm Bob Nickerson. I was born and raised on a dairy farm in Brooks, Maine. My brother ran the farm after that, after my dad stopped. And uh, I could have inherited the farm myself, but I gave up my legacy as a dairy heir. So I no longer sit to milk Bidley Cow's dairy heir, dairy heir, or smell the dairy heir. I gave up that for a, le- a career of throwing up in public and catching it, which is similar to dairy behavior because cows throw up too, but they chew it. I could go on like this, but... Uh, You might not have the stomachs for that. You may not be in the mood. It could drive you utterly crazy. Crazy, of course, is a Freudian term referring to a cow's relationship to his fodder. I'm told it's an edible complex, but not as serious as the visual problem cows sometimes have while grazing. Yes, you've heard about pasteurized pasture eyes. Yes, it's all clover for that cow. And their eyes turn all grassy and and you got to get her to the vet right away. But it will cost you an arm and a legume. Hey. <laughs> hey, what can I say? Bob, that you couldn't have ended the podcast any better. That brought back so many memories of all those wonderful IJ experiences. Thank you, Bob, for being a part of my IJ experience and my juggling memories. And thank you for being on the Drop Everything podcast. And thanks most of all for being Bob Nickerson with the knickers on, the jocular juggler. And you've been a part of my juggling memories too, uh, Dan. Believe me. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 97, my conversation with Bob Nickerson. I can't wait to see you, Bob, at a festival in the future. Speaking of festivals, check out the IJA. That's International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Find out about this year's virtual festival and next year's festival in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. Until then, drop everything, except when you're juggling.